welcome to season two of our Brave New You Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Lou Hamilton, co-founder with Meredith Hepner Chapman of Brave New You Apparel. I interview real-life brave new girls and guys who have chosen a road less traveled, risen to the challenges, and found the courage to keep going when the going gets tough. They share the lessons they've learned, their wins, and their vision for the future. Brave, bold, and sometimes bloody-minded, they bring you their stories from the edge. This week's guest is Mickey Noonan, who once shoved an apple pip up her nose to see what happened. Older, wiser, but sadly without a nose tree, she remains curious about the world, which is why she became a journalist, with a short stint as a sexpert, and is now the hosting team of the hugely successful Standard Issue podcast. Welcome, Mickey, to Brave New You Tribe. Hi, Mickey. How are you? Hi, Lou. I'm fine, thank you. How are you in your splendid lipstick? Ah, yeah, always the lipstick, always red. So today we're let out, aren't we? We're released. Do we get our freedom back? We do get our freedom back. Yeah, yeah. End of lockdown two. And uh, yeah, see what happens with that one. I don't know Um, that I want to go out anymore. I don't know that I know how to do that anymore. (laughs) I'm the same. I quite like it. And on a sort of lighter note, for 2020 you know it may be we've been about pj bottom zoom tops red lipstick letting our hair grow how has it been for you the light-hearted stuff or the getting dressed stuff because you know (laughs) yeah Yeah, maybe they don't come under the same heading (laughs) you're really honored actually I don't usually get dressed at all even for zoom interviews because obviously I talk to a lot of people because I'm a journalist and yeah it's a sort of take take me as you find me when I don't have to leave the house a lot of cookie monster apparel which is fine both in black vests, aren't we, today? Yes, I'm in dungarees, which are the working girls' pyjamas, I think, <laughs> for sure. But makeup, I think, has been something that I've done every day, just in a sort of semblance of routine, put my makeup on, because I don't mind what other people think of me, but I also have to look at little tiny me in the corner and, nah, don't want to do that. And I know you can turn it off. I know you can turn yourself off on a Zoom meeting, but then how will I know what my face is doing? And yeah. it could go very wrong. <laughs> yeah. And in normal life, you don't get to see yourself so often, do you? You're kind of interacting. Yeah, they have to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. So on a, maybe on a less light note, how's it, how's it been for you? How have you coped? It's been mixed, to be honest with you. So I'll start with the positive, and that is... I am a very social person, but I'm also someone who is delighted when the other person cancels. So not having to go anywhere or do anything has been joyous, apart from trying to work out how to get out of like continuous Zoom calls. But I've just I've just learned to say no, because I think the power of no is a marvellous thing. And for my mental health, I quickly worked out that Zoom calls with friends actually made me feel a little bit less connected, particularly when there was a big group. So they don't do much for me. So I'm like, I love you guys. I'd rather just have one-on-ones sorted that. I'm super, super lucky. I live in a lovely house with a man I adore and who adores me and brings me coffee and makes me laugh and gives me cuddles and a whole menagerie of glorious animals to chill out with. So I realise I am super lucky and my job's not been affected and Gary's job's not been affected. So they are all the positives. But... 
it's it's been mixed. I've we've had family loss, which has been really sad, and I think grief is heightened in lockdown because you don't have the support of a community that you usually would have. I couldn't go to the funeral just because of numbers and distance and travelling, which was really sad. And I was supposed to get married this year. Oh, Gary and I were supposed to get married, and obviously that got cancelled. Uh, I mean, we're still together and that's the important thing, but you put a lot of love and planning and joy into sorting out a wedding and for that not to happen. We were fine with it at first, but then on the actual day it should have been, we were a bit like bottom lip out. And But, you know, we went and fed some otters. It wasn't all bad. So, yeah, definitely mixed. And because my job means that I have to look at the news every day, I found it quite relentless because it hasn't been easy to find good news. And we definitely try to find good news to put in standard issue so that it isn't all just doom gloom and screaming into a pillow. Uh, but yeah, my, my screaming pillow has had a lot of use <laughs> this year. Yeah. What about you? Has it been a similar sort of story? Yeah, I think so. Really up and down. I really panicked in the first lockdown, first few weeks and sort of got a, like a absolutely regimented routine, like every minute was planned for. And But, <laughs> but after three weeks, I sort of, I thought, okay, I, this isn't going to be over soon, so I just need to chill out a bit. And I kind of got into the swing of it. And, and it wasn't, you know, like you, I'd sort of work a lot from home anyway, so that wasn't a massive change. And I'd sort of managed to get stuff online, so I was managing able to sort of carry on working. But I think it was more sort of an emotional, emotional roller coaster, sort of quite up and down. But actually yeah. doing this podcast and having a really great conversation with a different person each week has has kept me kept me up really has really sort of fed me and and has really helped. I think the company of interesting people is incredibly nourishing, I think. And I think also I hope that for a lot of people, and obviously this comes with the caveat that there are a shit ton of idiots out there who will never learn lessons. But it, it's, it's helped put stuff into perspective. I read a brilliant tweet that said, lockdown, what's lockdown? There's been no lockdown. There's just been middle class people hiding while working class people bring them stuff. And as someone from a working class background who, like my sister, you know, she works in Aldi and she has had a really hard time with people just being idiots. And she's not she's not been able to lock down. She's had to go to work every day. And so actually keeping that, at the forefront of your mind makes you realise just how lucky we've been. My partner's a cameraman, so obviously the film industry stopped when uh, first lockdown happened. And so he drives for uh, Tesco's and he has seen a side of, of lockdown that, and probably life that was already bad anyway, but the, the poverty that he's seen and... And even now we're in December, he ha- he g- delivers for people who haven't been outside their front door since March. It's it's hard, isn't it? Yeah, the, the joy of even living in London, but having so many green spaces to get to and a, a dog that means that even when I've not felt like it, OK, let's walk Elsie because she needs to get out. That's fine. And that that lift you get just from a change of scenery. And the lift your brain gets from a change of scenery. I remember in the first lockdown, I was having like absolute 
crackers cheese dreams. You know, when your brain is just, you've just got a head full of bees. There's no switching off. You try to go to sleep, takes a while. When you get to sleep, your brain goes, okay, we've had no visual stimulus apart from the same four walls for days now. So we're just going to make up crazy shit. And you wake up like sweating. What's going on? (laughs) Yeah, but they've calmed down a little bit now. Yeah, I think dreams are a good indicator of sort of how you're coping in the daytime, aren't they? Yes, definitely. So you're a journalist and you're one of the hosts on the Standard Issue podcast. Yes. How did it all begin? I love your story about the the apple pip. I'd like to know <laughs> about that, really, because that's an, that is an act of curiosity as a child. <laughs> yeah, I stuffed an apple pip up my nose. <laughs> we were told that if you ate the pips trees would grow on the inside so you were obviously taking that experiment I swear like parents lie to their kids so so much from Father Christmas sorry if anyone's listening to dispel um, that myth there is no Father Christmas it's just your parents rustling about with a pillowcase and the tooth fairy and if you swallow chewing gum it'll wrap around your heart that one terrified me I once accidentally swallowed chewing gum immediately burst into tears because I thought that was the end that was it but less fear with the apple pip which I was very curious about what would happen if I put it up my nose I think I was about five or six and what happened was it got lodged and we had to go to hospital so someone could could retrieve uh, the apple pip. But yeah, I think it was curiosity. And that is definitely what has led me to journalism, just being really, really interested in people. And also to toot my own horn a bit, I, I'm quite a natural writer. So I like words, I like messing about with them. And that combined with is it nosiness? I'm going to say curiosity about people. So when I meet someone, I want to know their story. I want to know what makes them tick, why they do things. And that is key to being a journalist. It isn't really about the writing. That really helps. But it is about wanting to tell someone else's story and be able to back out of it yourself. There's a lot, there's a trend now for putting yourself into a story, which was something that I was told never to do in journalism unless you're doing a review and obviously you can go I like this or I didn't like this but mainly if you're interviewing someone it's about them not you Uh, yeah so I guess it was just being really interested in people and I (laughs) my mum told me I was too soft for journalism I was a sensitive little soul and quite shy And she said, you're too soft. Journalism or law were the two that I was interested in. But in fairness, it was only because I really liked L.A. law and it was never going to be like that. So the writing, (laughs) the writing won out. Um, And she didn't she just didn't think about arts journalism, which is a lot fluffier, which is what I went into initially started. So I studied English and philosophy at university. Don't know why, but, you know, I did all right. I like the words. I like the thinking. And then I did a postgrad fast track course in journalism called the NCTJ and learned shorthand, which I still use today. And it's like a superpower. I love that. It's brilliant. People are like, wow, she's writing in hieroglyphics. It's so good. And about law and local council and like just all the stuff that goes into local newspapers, because that's what you're trained to go into. And you would be a trainee reporter, but that didn't really interest me at all. And my mate, my mate said, can you bullshit your way onto this magazine? I can get you some like paid work experience. And I said, yeah, told them I'd been writing for ages for people. Hadn't worked at this men's mag called Later 
for a week and then they asked me to come back the next week and then they asked me to come back the next week and I said I can't I've got to go back and finish my uh, my postgrad thing and they were like okay and then I went back in the summer and I'd always wanted to write for lads mags at the time which is when they were in their heyday I think because women's magazines very much seemed to be like how to get your man, how to please your man, how to keep man. Oh, fuck off. Where am I in this? And being told that we were lesser. Whereas lads mags were like, hey, mate, have you got a beer gut? No worries. You can have this bird. And the kind of confidence and humour and self-deprecation really kind of a- attracted me to that that world. So I wrote for lads mags for quite a long time, for a good couple of years. Yeah. So what was the rise of the Lab Mag? Because that was, was it the 90s that it really... Oh, yeah. It was just porn for dwarves, wasn't it, Lou? Yeah. If you couldn't if you couldn't reach yeah. the top shelf, you could get some tits a little bit lower down. We used to have to do this thing later, and later was seen as uh, the older brother of Loaded. We were in the same building, and it was supposed to be classier and aimed at dads, basically, people like men who were a little bit more grown up and therefore a little bit more mature. I'm laughing. And we used to have to do a monthly nipple count because if you had too many nipples, then it had to go up a higher shelf in the shops. So you had to check that there weren't there weren't too many nipples. So it was very classy. I think we can agree on that. <laughs> I, I'm hazarding a guess that you that you're a feminist. What? Yes, I am absolutely so, a feminist. Died so in the wool. <laughs> so is it, was it like somebody that goes into politics to try and disrupt politics and to kind of do it from the inside? Or or was it just, uh, was it a, a job that you could do and it was a laugh? Or did you have some kind of sense that you could somehow kind of bring the women's angle that blokes wouldn't get? I think they had a sense that I could bring the woman's angle that blokes couldn't get because I was quite often sent to interview women because they would open up a bit more to me as a woman. But to be honest with you, I wasn't a feminist then. I didn't come to feminism until my early 20s and I started working for later. I worked for them from when I was about 20 to when I was about 23. And it was when I met my friend Tina who has been a wonderful guide in my life. She's family. And she said to me, you write food porn. And I was like, okay, they were her first words to me. She said, I really like it. And then she kind of questioned me and she told me I was a feminist. And I went, how dare you? <laughs> and I really reacted because it's a word that terrifies my mother. So I wasn't, even though she brought me up on her own and by many, many actions, Anne is a feminist in words, not at all. And so it felt like anathema to me. I was like, no, that's not me. And then Tina just said, oh, it means that you believe that women should be equal. And I went, oh, yeah, right, then. (laughs) I'm a feminist. And once the light's gone on, you notice things more and more and more. So would I have then wanted to do the job I did for Maxim, particularly where I was their sexpert for (laughs) nine months? And actually, I got fired because my copy wasn't belt loosening enough and I, you know, I'm all right with that decision. <laughs> I'm all right. We want them running to the toilets. And I was like, wowzers. Okay. Yeah, that's probably not for me. When you were the sexpert, what was your advice? So it was, it wasn't that people were writing in, in a kind of agony and style. I just, I wrote the monthly sort of sex feature. 
So my editor would phone me and it'd be like, oh, so S&M, really interested, get some people online, have a chat, yeah? And then hang up and I'd be like, oh, okay, right? How do I get into Torture Garden? <laughs> and just have to work it out that way. How do I get these people to trust me and talk to me about their, their kinks that they're into, their proclivities, all of these exciting things that you can do with your body parts and that bring pleasure and in some cases pain, but they're all right with it. Then how do I get them to talk about it? And then I'd have to like, they'd be like, okay, now can you design a torture garden kind of sex dungeon using only household equipment? So I'd be like, okay, like look around and what can you do on a whirly gig? You know, how are you going to use that spatula? And it was more that kind of thing than, you know, my girlfriend wants it four times a night and I'm tired. How do I get out of this? Uh, but I think, I think I always put generosity into it because I do think that kindness, generosity and listening is going to get you the best of things in most areas of your life. And sex is no different to that. So that was kind of always key in what I was writing about. It was a funny time, wasn't it? Because it was, there was the kind of the rise of the lab mag and, and it was kind of big bravado. Guys were like, sod you we're going to have our our mags and you know it was quite sort of bullish having them and and all but also women were less wanting to be upfront about feminism they were sort of it was definitely a oh no that was kind of our parents generation you know we're not feminists and and it was almost like a sort of dirty word to be to call yourself a feminist but that did change and and could you see that change could i see that change I think in society, it's been a slower shift to accepting that word. So even when we started Standard Issue, you don't see the word feminist on our tagline because we realise it can be off-putting. And in the seven years that I've been doing Standard Issue, if you took me back to the beginning now, I'd be like, we're putting that on there. Let's get that on there because we are unashamedly feminist and if you don't like it, then we're probably not going to be for you, whether you can see the word or not. <laughs> you know, it's going to, why, why Why shouldn't we shout about that? But, you know, I think I definitely wanted to be the cool girl. And I think that was the 90s and Ladettes and, you know, Sarah Cox and Zoe Ball and all of these women who were drinking pints of beer. Oh, my God, where do they put it? They're only tiny women. They're not going to fit a pint in. Yeah. And it was claiming equality but maybe not saying the word what I do think is that women of my generation so I'm 43 and did come to it a little bit later but when I have come to it even though age-wise I'd probably be classed as third wave I am second wave feminist I think I am quite hardcore rather than third wave feminist which third wave feminism I find interesting I think feminism is great and like more power to people getting involved and putting women centering women that's what feminism means to me and then obviously the intersections within women because it's a huge group it's a huge group guys it's like more than half the population and yes we should be equal surprise, surprise. <laughs> oh I know it still comes as a shock to a lot of people um but I don't think I don't think feminism is 
to is there to make everything better which i think a lot of third wave feminists kind of go oh it's for everyone come on in feminism is going to make the world better for everyone and i think well, no feminism's for women and we should be able to have that so that makes me sort of more second wave i think but yeah the the joy when i speak to young women though who have come to it from like 14 15 is incredible and i absolutely applaud their self-awareness, I certainly didn't have that. I still lack it now. So the fact that they've got this and they are vocal about it is, I think, incredible progress, for sure. When we were we were giving talks, there was, I don't know, four or five of us, wasn't there, um, giving a talk to a group of, of young women um, at the Believe Festival. Yes. And, and we were all blown away by how amazing these women were. Yeah, these young women have got ideas and notions of where they want to fit and where they should fit in the world. At an age where, you know, I was still too scared to wear mascara because I get it on my forehead. You know, just like all of these things that they are much more sorted about. They seem they seem a lot more grown up than maybe I was at that age. And part of me feels a bit sad for that, that they're not having a bit more of a playful time. But it's absolutely incredible to see them going out there and just grabbing hold of stuff and going, yeah, this is mine. I'm going to take up space instead of making themselves smaller, which is what women are told to do time and time again. These girls, these women were just powerfully going, well, this is what I want to be. This is what I want to do. How do I do that? And asking those questions instead of saying, can I do that? It's like, how do I do that? And just that shift of a question is incredibly powerful isn't it what about you are you a feminist oh yeah yeah again I was I was more quiet about it in the 90s but are you uh, going to bleep I, out the word you know when we talked about swearing and you're like you yeah, can bleep out this bleep out feminism but I always knew that I was but I felt quite lonely in that feeling I didn't feel like there was a sort of big cohort of of us that we were all kind of you know when when you know that group of girls that we were were talking with they were in a generation of women feeling strong and yes. and powerful and you know their their questions weren't about can we do this it's how can we do this mm-hmm. you know what they were trying to glean any bits of knowledge from us just as they, it was like sort of trying to sort of suck the information out so yeah. that they can take that and run with it and whereas I was much more sort of I knew what I was but I didn't know where to put that or or where that could where I could go with it the idea of sort of I don't know I mean podcast obviously didn't exist then but you know standing standing my ground and saying no this is for women I, I wouldn't have maybe have been strong enough to to do that, but but the the ideas were there in my head. It just didn't have a context, or it didn't feel like I had a context. I think you made a really interesting, vital point there when you said podcast didn't exist. There wasn't forums back when we were younger that that women and young like young girls, girls and women have access to now. And I know YouTube gets a lot of shit and in a lot of cases, rightly so, it is very dangerous. Turn off the autoplay, guys, turn off the autoplay. And the upside of that, though, is that 
women have got these forums where they can talk and people will listen. And I think those spaces on YouTube, on Snapchat, I don't know what I'm talking about anymore, on TikTok, all of those wonderful things, I have no idea what they are, are providing women and young women spaces to have their voices heard. The flip side of that is, of course, whenever a woman puts her voice out into the world, she will get a lot of shit from idiots and sexists. That is just something that happens. But I think those spaces for their voices are incredibly powerful. And if women feel stronger in their position, then the flack, A, kind of, you know, is water off a duck's back, mostly, but also the people who are kind of saying those things and trying to pull you down get less traction because they know that it's not landing on you. Whereas I think when you're feeling in a, in a less powerful position and less strong <clears throat> in your own sense of self and sense of being a woman and what that means in the world, then any criticism is it can easily pull you down. Whereas I think because we have, you know, stronger and stronger networks, then any criticism is kind of is less able to find a hold. It's diluted, I guess. I don't think it always feels like that when it's headed directly at you. But the fact that you can catch 22, the fact that you can talk to another woman and she's pretty much bound to have had the same is fucking horrible. (laughs) But the fact that you can talk to a woman and she's pretty much had the same is solidarity as well. And I think it it can lead to a very powerful rage and rage is still not seen as a very womanly emotion. But I think when harnessed correctly, it is incredibly powerful and it gets shit done. So when the Me Too movement happened, where were you positioning yourself? Were you in a were you able to to write about it, to talk about it kind of publicly with your work? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. It was it was a big news story that we covered a lot. And actually around that time I wrote a piece about sexual assault which I've had happen to me quite a lot. Yay. Um, And yeah, totally supportive of those women coming forward. And also I interviewed Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor, who wrote the book She Said, which is the story of how the Harvey Weinstein broke. They are the incredible investigative reporters that broke that story and the work that they put into it. It's an incredible book. I recommend everyone read it. Just the work that went into that and that nearly at the final moment, it nearly just didn't get published because you have power and money and you can pretty much make everything go away. So yeah, that that was really powerful and part of that story that obviously re-kickstarted the hashtag Me Too. But even then, there was kickback. And I think knowing that there was going to be kickback is really important. And also, I do feel that it's lost a bit of focus. We went from me to to the stories getting, like, more and more stories. That flood hasn't gone away, but the interest in it has gone away. And I think what it needs to change to now, and I chatted to the activist Sophie Walker about this, and she said brilliantly, what we need now is we too where all of these stories come together and that solidarity and that community push for a change. Because apart from Weinstein, what's really happened? And now you're getting the kickback of, oh, well, women can just ruin a powerful man's career. It's gone overnight. And you're like, yeah, who? Who? Give me some names. Because 
apart from the man who actually is a convicted rapist and, you know, Louis C.K., he's back. He he did stuff, but he's back and doing comedy. He's not lost any of his power or his money. So who, who are these men whose lives have been ruined? Because that's not that's not the real story, but it's a story I think society is much more comfortable with. So, yes, we absolutely still talk about it and still want to shine a light on it. But I do think there's there's a problem in harnessing where we that force, that incredible force, that incredible outpouring, harnessing that and seeing actual change in society still feels like a million miles apart. So when you you've moved from working on on men's magazines, you worked on Metro for a good stint. And then how did it come about that you started working with or did you form it? I'm not sure how how it came about with the Standard Issue magazine. So, yeah, I went to Metro and I was like an arts writer there, a staff writer on the Yorkshire edition. And then I really loved comedy and comedy was something that I've loved from an early age. And I did a lot of comedy interviews for the Lads Max. So that was kind of my niche as well as the sex, sex and comedy, which, you know, I quite often put together anyway, but that's a different story. Um, so I wrote a lot about comedy and became the comedy editor for Metro outside of London and would go up to the Edinburgh Festival every year and stay there for a couple of weeks and talk to all these brilliant, funny people. And I met Sarah Millican and Sarah and I really hit it off. I actually met Sarah when my mate who was a comedy promoter decided it'd be really funny to put me on the bill. So I did my first stand-up session and my last stand-up session and (laughs) Sarah was on the bill and that's how I met her and she gave me a few tips beforehand and we had a natter afterwards and she was fairly new to it then she hadn't done her first Edinburgh show at that point and I said oh I'd love to interview you for my my actual job and she was up for it and I interviewed her a few times and we became mates which was lovely and then all of the regional editions of Metro folded and as is the way of print journalism and I did PR for a bit and just sort of freelanced and thought that my journalism days were over because the industry is in trouble people don't think they have to pay for it you have to pay for it if you want like decent news and then Sarah got in touch and she said I'm thinking of starting a magazine would you be up for writing for me and I was like hell yes of course and her thought process was she couldn't pick up a magazine aimed at women your traditional women's magazine without feeling bad she's like I know even if like the first few pages I'm fine there's going to be a point in it where it makes me feel shit about myself she said the only time I ever see someone who looks like me in one of these magazines is if they've got the word before above them she's like I don't I don't want any of the clothes they're trying to shield to me I want a magazine where a woman can just come and know she's not going to be made to feel shit about herself it's not going to be new year, new me. It's going to be new year. You're great as you are. Well done for getting out of bed. And I was like, yeah, totally on board. And she said, good, I'd love you to edit it for me. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and so that's how Standard Issue started. And for for a good few months, it was me with my full-time job and then just sat crying in my back bedroom going, "How? why have I said I will do this? How do you start a magazine? How do you start doing this? And working... 20 hours a week on standard issue as well as my full-time job and 20 hours a week commuting so I was I was very tired for a while and there was me Sarah and Kiri Pritchard-McLean who is another brilliant comedian 
Kimmy was doing my admin and Sarah had said, if you get, and I'd had all these writers sending me stuff in and a lot of them were comedians because uh, obviously it was our contacts and they were writing things, these women were writing things and I was trying to work out how that would make a magazine. And so I waved at Sarah and said, look, I'm in trouble. I could do with some help. Uh, it's a lot. And she said, OK. So uh, Hannah Dunleavy, who I didn't know, but Sarah knew from the stand-up circuit. But actually, Hannah is a journalist by trade. She's a reporter. She's worked on loads of local newspapers, particularly in Cambridge. And she's a, an absolutely brilliant writer. So she's a, a brilliant writer, a news journalist, and very funny. So I was like, she seems great. Can I have her? And Hannah said, yes, please. And so we became a bit of a dream team, I guess, and worked out how to give the magazine structure and how to fit everyone's stuff in and what might work and what to put on the page. So it was all it's all a very big adventure, a very big, scary adventure, but really, really rewarding. And yeah, just having something that champions women and accepts you as you are and sees us as flawed, glorious women that we all are. You know, no one's perfect. Perfect's boring anyway. No one wants to be perfect. Perfect's not sexy. And, you know, that's what women need to be, sexy. I'm joking. And, yeah, so that, that's how it started, I guess. Was it always an online magazine? Yes, it was always an online magazine, just for cost, because, you know, Sarah was funding all of this. It, it, we were quite naive, I guess, in that we didn't seek advertising or funding outside of Sarah before we launched. We kind of thought if we make something brilliant, then people will want to advertise with us. And they did. But the problem was we also had decided that we wouldn't take advertising that made women feel shit about themselves. And the only people who want to advertise in women's magazines are face creams and anti-aging and fashion. And so we were like, oh, fuck, uh, we we're a bit screwed there. So, yeah, print costs so much more. So to have it all online was just the most cost efficient way of doing it. And so what was it, its journey once you realised that you were gonna, you were struggling with the right kinds of uh, advertising? Even though it's online, it's still costing presumably your wages and you know, exactly. time. And what was the trajectory? We had two and a half years as an online magazine and then it became clear that we had to cut our cloth accordingly. And Sarah is one of the most gloriously stubborn humans I've ever met and she doesn't let go of a good idea so standard issue was always going to stay but it was just how do we do that without it like basically pissing money and so a podcast which is why we had me and Hannah as the host and we have Jen offered as well and Jen came on board standard issue as a writer for the magazine and she writes about sport and she's really into sport she uh and for the 2012 Olympics, she tried every sport that there was in the Olympics and wrote a blog about it. And then she cycled across America. So she was really into it in a way that like I like running and <laughs> I'll do a bit of circus stuff. But Jen can actually talk about sport. And we thought it was a really important aspect to cover in women's lives because it's also something that's been ignored and not funded. And that's why women don't see sport. Girls drop out of PE. So when we were trying to think who could be the host, what kind of mix we should have then Jen seemed like a really good fit and then yeah we we learned how to podcast and edit and all of the stuff that goes with it a really interesting transition from online magazine to 
sort of almost like a sort of magazine format podcast instead of a uh, the written word it's almost returning to a sort of audio tradition of you know storytelling isn't it That, that that goes back to sitting around the campfire you know women telling each other stories of you know mythological stories and stories of things that of survival and so there's we've almost gone full circle it's very definitely for women by women but about everything I love that tagline yeah I guess that goes back to the original idea behind standard issue and a bit like when I was talking about why I wanted to write for men's mags rather than women's mags society likes to put us in boxes and society likes to put all people in boxes and we don't need boxes we need more wiggle room I always think we should be putting like jiffy bags or just allowed to spread out and when you look at women's magazines there are very specific things that get ticked like how you look how like to be sexy (laughs) whatever that fucking means because it's so subjective anyway what you're expected to be like from society and women aren't seen as interested in sport or cars or tech or gaming and all of these things and actually we're interested in so much more than lipstick I bloody love a lipstick don't get me wrong and like I said you look smashing in yours and I'm annoyed that I forgot to put mine on but there's more to us than that and that was the whole point is like you know women are interested in the news and politics and politics with a capital p and politics with a small p which feeds into every area of life and it was just getting getting us out of those boxes i suppose it's interesting isn't it when you take out the visual suddenly the world opens up because it's all about stories and words and when you take out you know what someone looks like you're interested in what they have to say and their ideas and opinions and and suddenly you know you you haven't once the visuals out of the way it's like that whole problem area is gone too you've used the word several times and I think it's it's one of the most powerful resources we've got is the story and stories and they're powerful in the stories that we tell each other and choose to tell each other and the powerful in the stories that people choose not to tell and I think for a long time there's been certain stories that people have chosen not to tell about women those troublesome troublesome aspects of of women and we're allowed to be troublesome we're allowed to kick up a fuss we're allowed to take up space we're allowed to be angry all of that stuff is part of our story as well and you're right without those visual distractions I mean I'd be distracted in like not a very pleasant way (laughs) most of the time you know but without those visual distractions you can just focus on what someone has to say you're absolutely right and it's, it's a joy and also by giving ourselves the constraints of, well, if we have a topic that Hannah, Jen and I really want to talk about, we have to find a woman who is an expert in that topic. And do you know what, Lou? There are loads of them. And it's like, well, society just quickly gets a guy. And the guy, you know, there, there is more of them who are allowed to be experts in everything from history to science to technology. But if you make the effort to say, no, actually, we, we speak to women, then they'll find a woman. So many times we're offered like, oh, a spokesman. No, nah, can't, can't talk to them. Have you got any women? Oh, well, this is who we usually use. Okay. 
oh okay yeah yeah we can find a woman oh interesting interesting why wasn't she put forward and yeah you you find you find that 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 we're out there we're everywhere oh my god hide funnily enough we are (laughs) there are many many women on every subject out there and being able to give the fact that you're giving them a platform that's what it needs isn't it you must have so many people applying to be on your show are there people that you've said women that you've said uh no that's not something we want to talk about what wouldn't you have on the show there are two issues we steer away from because they're very very sticky and that is the sex industry and trans issues because they're just hugely complicated and we're a tiny team of three and the kind of backlash you get for anything you say either side either aspect of all of those things the 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 backlash you get on twitter we just we just would not be able to handle so we just made the decision that we will stay away from that but everything else is fair game obviously we have to say no because we we don't have enough space we we can't have a five-hour podcast as much as hannah dunleavy would like that to happen it was we just can't we just can't have a five-hour podcast and we do do lots of bonus stuff and we pick themes we try to go for universal stuff that affects all women so you know we talk a lot about periods we you know we talk about pregnancy birth miscarriage stuff that gets ignored because it's hard to talk about the menopause we've done quite a lot on the menopause because for ages there was nothing in like in in the greater world where women could use stuff as a resource which is changing which is amazing just women's health in general and how we are quite often ignored still seen as hysterical we've covered that a lot so no there's there's nothing that we would say no to I think part of our job and an important part of our job is also finding those diverse voices particularly as we are three white women hosts it's really important that you know for me I went traveling I took myself off to South America when I was 30 and spent three months there just on my own and I think women traveling on their own is a really important topic and it's one that we've covered but my experience of traveling is going to be really, really different to a black woman's experience of traveling on her own. So it is being aware that those different voices mean that you're going to get different opinions and something that we're like, oh yeah, women can do that now, isn't universal for all women. That's what universal means, Mickey, isn't universal. So that's something that really strive to make sure that we get that diversity and also diversity of celebrating different women's lives. So I guess saying no to stuff it's like if we've got a really hard topic one week and someone says can we talk about another really hard topic it's like oh we don't want a doom and gloom podcast you know we've got the news for that or if we've had a white middle class woman talking about something then we'll strive really and strive the next time to have someone from a different background talking about that Hannah and I wang on about working class like issues a lot and it's really important to get that range of voices so I guess if someone was trying to sell us the same thing or trying to talk about the same thing that we'd already covered that's when we'd say no but yeah open book and like learned so much stuff over the past seven years and still learning and it's it's a joy it's an absolute joy to still be learning at 43. And what's your vision for the future? Just like keep going and talk to more amazing women I think that's it I think I've I moved from like my first journo job was basically 
helping men to wank on trains not like physically but uh like with the, providing the words those those all important belt loosening words to get them dashing to the train toilet oh, it's horrible and now actually being able to give a platform for women's voices to talk about stuff that's really important we cover so many charities and we've had letters and messages telling us how we've helped people when we've spoken about rape or we've spoken about the menopause or sexual assault or something joyous that they've like read a book that we recommended and just those messages of hope and solidarity just just to get more of those I suppose and to just keep giving women who maybe wouldn't usually have their voices heard an opportunity to be heard or as a listener to feel like someone's speaking to them. You've interviewed lots of women who have shown courage in many many different ways I wonder how you define courage courage is a big word isn't it I think it's a really big word and I think I was raised to associate it with the kind of heroics that we see on television and in film and as someone who was so shy as a kid that I would hide behind my mum's skirts and was terrified of asking my granddad for a sandwich because he just had a really naturally loud voice and so I thought he was shouting at me it didn't feel like that word applied to me or could apply to me I was told by my family that I was a scaredy cat I was relentlessly bullied at school so I didn't ever feel brave I always felt small and I think also courage it's got it's got connotations of boldness like you know unthinkingly dashing into a burning building to save a baby or throwing yourself off a mountain just for shits and giggles and I'm not sure that that feels like it applies to me either but as I've got older I think there is enormous courage to be found in just quietly getting on with stuff and as someone who has suffered from really severe depression some of the bravest moments in my life have been getting out of bed in a mo- in the morning and just keeping going and asking for help when I need it and recognising that it's okay to ask for help. So I think for me, personal courage is trusting myself a lot more. And that's been hard to do, but it also means that I was able to leave an abusive relationship I was able to phone the doctors and say, I'm struggling. Can you can you help me? Can you at least talk to me? And accept that there were going to be people who didn't like me. That took a lot of courage because I was like constantly like running around, turning myself inside out, not being the real me in the hope that I would please someone. But actually, I could never please. And the courage to go, do you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> it has been a massive life changer for me. So yeah, that's kind of, what what I would see as courage in my world. So you are a brave new girl. Yay! <laughs> Who would you recommend as another brave new girl for us to interview? Oh, it's so hard because as you said, I've interviewed so many incredible women who just tell me these stories of stuff that they've done in their life. And I'm like, how did you do that? That's amazing. So I'm going to pick Terry White, whose memoir coming undone is a thing of like just wonder how someone can survive all that and not just survive all that but be someone who is 
thriving now. Still struggling sometimes. She's really, really candid about it, but thriving. So Terry and I, I actually know Terry. We met, we both worked on later. They were, it was our first jobs. We were the, the two girls in the all-male office uh, back in, God, the early 2000s, I guess. Yeah. Terry is now editor-in-chief of Empire Magazine. So she's done pretty well. Uh, and she has been editor-in-chief of Time Out New York. She's done all these incredible things, but she comes from a very, very, very tough background, working class, poverty, sexual abuse, and struggles with booze, struggles with self-confidence, struggles with depression, struggles with suicide ideation, and she puts it all into coming undone. It's a really tough read, but she's also the most beautiful writer, and there is there's courage on every page. There's so much bravery on every page. Uh, it's stunning. She's stunning. I love her. Talk to Terry. <laughs> she sounds amazing. That'd be really powerful to have the opportunity to to talk to her. Yeah, get tissues though. It's it's hard. <laughs> so thanks, Mickey, so much for lifting our spirits on the day that we let out of lockdown too, and for taking us on a journey from the world where lads mags were okay to a world where we have platforms for women to speak out to be the powerful people that we are and and I really thank you for for that role that you play in having your podcast and inviting those women on and having those conversations so thank you so much thanks Lou and thank you for platforming incredible women too and for suggesting some incredible women to me who have been on the podcast I think that network that community that remembering all the similarities we have rather than focusing on the differences is so key to feminism and for women achieving equality and the power that is ours for the taking really yeah, let's get those stories out there. Thanks so much, Mickey. Absolutely. I'm going to go run up a hill now. <laughs> Freedom! <laughs> Freedom, yeah. Take care. See you Me soon. Too. Bye. Thanks so much, Mickey, for giving a platform for women, by women, about everything on the Standard Issue podcast and for always bringing much-needed laughter to the table. You can find out more about the podcast on www.standardissuepodcast.com and follow Mickey on Mixta Noonan on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks also to Podstar PR for producing the series and to you, our tribe, for listening. Download, rate and review on your podcast provider so that we can keep bringing you this free podcast. Goodbye for now and see you next time.